mean, a lot of my thinking is really at, at core the question that an editor would ask, which is, what's the most important thing that I can print um, and put out into the world? And once you take that question seriously, it takes you on a path that, you know, is truly independent of what we have today, which is this negotiation between advertisers and markets, demographics, um, and the polling and the matching that goes between those two completely eclipses the question of what do we need to be thinking about. Author and activist Casey Walker joins the Plutopia podcast this time. She talks about her early life in Nevada City, California, where she created and published Wild Duck Review. We also discuss biotechnology, media content versus money, moving from anti-tech to useful tech, intellectual evolution, and confronting the bullies. Hey, welcome everybody to the latest episode of the Plutopia News Network. I'm John Lebkowski and my partner Scoop is here today, Scoop Sweeney. Our guest today is Casey S. Walker. Casey has been thinking and creating independently since 1994 when she founded the literary and environmental journal Wild Duck Review. She produced 20 book-length issues and grew the circulation to 48 states and 13 countries. And in 2000, Sierra Club Books published issue 19 of Wild Duck Review as Made Not Born, The Troubling World of Biotechnology. Casey then went on to give interviews on national media, participate in conferences, and began speaking out on what she saw as a crisis in public news and discourse, which uh, you've certainly heard us discuss in the past. And uh, in 2004, she founded the Institute for Inquiry to pursue high-stakes biocultural issues. And then in 2009, she began the pursuit of an intuition she had that the accepted idea of public news and discourse is just off. And she spent the next decade working on a new theory and some architectural principles for online inquiry via close observation, deep retreat, and writing. And she's going to be presenting that work pretty soon, but today she's joining us, and hopefully we can talk a little bit about that. How are you doing, Casey? Great, great. Thanks. This is this is wonderful. It's a great yeah. way to come back from Hermitage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I've studied... Uh, hermiting myself. Uh, I've never been very good at it. What was it like to take so much time kind of away? It, it, I think that's a book into itself. Um, it was, it was, uh, I learned a lot. Um, I mean, I've always been comfortable with solitude, but it took it to a whole new level. And, uh, and, uh, having the determination to see through, um, a big idea was uh, harrowing at times, <laughs> but uh, uh, made it, got through. So kind of going back uh, to Wild Duck Review, how did, how did you get started with Wild Duck Reviews? What was that, what, and what was its focus? Well, um, I was fresh out of grad school with three kids in tow and uh, found myself over and over again, attracted to Nevada City, and um, 
there was a really strong arts community going on there. Gary Snyder was there. Um, a lot of a lot of good independent bookstore owner Joanna Robinson was there, um, and we started a reading series together. And um, I had the idea that starting a uh, interview-based newsprint journal, very low scale, of, as a way to educate people of poets and writers coming into town would be a really useful way of um, building the community around the written and spoken word um, and looking at where literature and environment was driving this cutting edge of thinking. Um, and it was deeply rooted in deep ecology, um, which was a really philosophical grounding on my part. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm just getting over a, an illness, so my voice is a little still shaking. It's okay. Um, the um, deep ecology was was um, deeply discontent with shallow ecology, which was very human centric. It was air quality, water quality. Um, it was all about what humans uh, wanted to regulate or call in for themselves. And it was not the deep ecology, which was relational to the to wilderness, to nature. Um, and so deep ecology was driving this um, relational um, imperative that people like Gary Snyder and Wendell Berry and various people had been writing about. Um, so that kind of was the incubus of the whole thing. Um, Did you connect and then with just, Joanna Macy at all? Yeah, yeah, Joanna Macy. And uh, she came up to Nevada City. And, oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like you started it as kind of a literary journal, but uh, um, concerns of ecology became a factor. Right, right. Um, yeah, the two were, were really very intertwined. Um, there was a pretty robust um, Northern California uh, triangle, I would say, between Arcata, Santa Cruz, and Nevada City that I could easily draw upon. People traveled long distances to come to read and talk. And, um, and there was this really um, great generosity of spirit because I didn't know a thing about um, putting together a print journal, how to distribute it. I, I just learned from scratch. So it was, I was in learner mode, which if we've all had the experience is just the best place to be because you just ask questions and people jump in and pretty soon there's a whole village creating this thing and and it just uh, takes off. And uh, and that's what happened. Yeah, I've been there. I published a magazine years ago. Oh, okay. And uh, um, there's so much to consider, uh, especially just the production of the of the magazine or the journal itself. Uh, did you do the production on it or? or I did, did everything. I was wild duck. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I learned how to strip and wax the, the text onto the paper, the grid paper that then got shot onto film and then that got sent to the press. And so you were just doing it on PageMaker or, or some. Cork. Uh, well, eventually it was cork, but I started cork. off printing in Word and, and printing that out and stripping it onto the 
yeah, I mean, it's just like the most rudimentary. That sounds um, like a very old school method that uh, I was very familiar with before, you know, computers became a, uh, a usable thing in terms of layouts and creating uh, the, the written word. And yeah. uh, it was definitely a learning process. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I did one of those myself. I published one issue of a literary magazine. Actually, I published two issues of it. But one in particular, I completely did all the production and I printed everything out on a like letter quality dot matrix printer and pasted it all onto boards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was actually, yeah, 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 labor intensive, but it was kind of fun to do. Totally fun. It's like woodworking or sewing. It's like that immediate, tangible creation. So what yeah. was your circulation like? Uh, did you, I mean, did you sell well? Did you manage to get enough of a return on the investment? Well, every time we got, you know, I would print off 10,000 copies um, and then I, they would be bundled in string bundles and I would load up my Ford Explorer with my kids and on weekends we would drive all over Northern California and just throw bundles at cafes, libraries, bookstores. Wow. And, um, and it just, and then with the augmented, with the reading series, and we were drawing really great people from all over um, coming in, on a, nationally recognized poets and writers were coming in. And um, and the local B&Bs would put them up. And, um, you know, it was just like, it was just a, it was one of those magical moments. Um, and um, yeah, so it just, it just grew. Um, and it grew sort of meteoric. And my own, it started off as very much of a community-based effort. And the community radio station was involved with helping me get the interviews done. And um, a lot, it was just fantastic. But pretty soon I started to um, take more seriously on a, on a larger level um, some of the, the intellectual problems that were nagging at me um, that were of the moment that were of a larger scale than community-based cultivation of literature. So um, so I just had, I kind of ended up on going on this arc. And um, I would say it started with <clears throat> maybe the media issue um, where I really started really, um, really looking at um, this profound mismatch between what we were thinking about at large and how we were thinking about it um, as an intellectual problem unto itself. Yeah, I think you were ahead of the curve on those concerns. I mean, it's it's a lot more obvious now than it was when you started thinking about it, I think. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that I was lucky enough. I think that anybody, uh, anybody that um, was in my position would think the same way. You know, it, it wasn't like it was particularly unique to me it's just that any intelligent person in the position that i was in which was uh free to think about these things nobody yeah, I mean, was employing. well you were producing you were producing media and uh i my understanding is that as a person who was producing a, a piece of media the, the review um that 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 helped you to get into thinking about these issues, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, a lot of my thinking is really at, at core 
the question that an editor would ask, which is, what's the most important thing that I can print um, and put out into the world? And once you take that question seriously, it takes you on a path that, you know, is truly independent of what we have today, which is this negotiation between advertisers and markets, demographics, um, and the polling and the matching that goes between those two completely eclipses the question of what do we need to be thinking about? Yeah, yeah I mean, content is not art or journalism, but it's just product, right? Go ahead, Scoop, sorry. Yeah, I started in uh, radio news in 1964 in commercial radio. And uh, the experience was, you know, initially a lot of fun until I realized how it really worked. And uh, it, the media was, the radio news was determined you know, by commercial concerns. You know, if your sponsor of the newscast didn't like what you were saying, uh, you weren't allowed to say it anymore, and right. that's uh, still quite evident. So I moved to non-commercial media, and it, it was a different set of problems, but when you get uh, money involved, uh, that se seems to overrule any kind of uh, creative uh, concerns, any kind of intellectual right. concerns. Right, right. yeah. And it is an, it's an industry, and I, I think – Few people really understand that media as we know it today is an industry um, and it has its way of producing its product um, and measuring and exploiting its consumers. And um, so it's not, it's not responsive or beholden to um, the larger questions, the burning questions. Well, it's dominated too by monopolies. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And and one thing that's changed in a big way is that, at the, I mean, at the time you were starting Wild Duck Review, and at the time um, uh, I was publishing my magazine, we were sort of on the tail end of the mass media era, and uh, the Internet uh, was becoming a thing. And, and uh, with the Internet, we eventually had – what we refer to as social media, which is like kind of a free for all where everybody's involved and very few people are making a whole lot of money doing it. Well, actually, I think maybe more now than than before, but um, uh, the larger companies, um, in, especially like where social media is concerned, something like Facebook. Right, well, Facebook and Google and maybe to some extent Twitter kind of dominate the, the the well they they are the ones who own the means of production that everybody uses and everybody sort of becomes their product. Right. Right. It's a very self-reinforcing loop that uh that just yeah, it's it is what it is. <laughs> um and it's also what it's what it's not what we need. Um, well, when you when you first started seeing this and thinking about it, uh, one factor was the media that you were producing yourself. But were you also influenced by what you were seeing with the internet, the early evolution of the internet? Um, 
let's see. I, I mean, I started when people in my collegial group were um, really anti-tech. You know, we were faxing back and forth. Um, <laughs> some people refused even to have email. So um, I went from working with that level of resistance to when I started the Institute for Inquiry in 2004, I had a lot of people taking me aside and saying, you know, that I was dancing with the devil. I was, you know, in the belly of the beast. And it was like, um, and, and a lot of people washed their hands of me uh, because I was, I was taking the new technology for what it could be. Um, and that there's a larger, more pressing global planetary level of concern going on um, because I could see that um, there was in some ways a bifurcation going on between um, folks that were very values driven, local driven um, and, um, and in a way were self-balkanizing um, from the larger questions of the human endeavor, the future of the earth, future of humanity, um, and being able to see through the systems and the structures that were keeping us in this increasingly dysfunctional uh, paradigm. So um, yeah, so it, it took a little bit of a breakaway for me to, um, to move forward um, but I had a couple of epiphany moments. Um, there was a moment after I did the biotech issue when a staffer down in Sacramento for a legislator, legislator uh, called me and said he'd read the 10 points to introduce biotech. And he said, I wanna get together. Could you come down to the Capitol and do a briefing for all of the um, national, national and statewide environmental public interest groups uh, the folks that would be really responsive to the points that you're, you're driving home here about biotechnology and the transformation of, um, of what, you know, what's going on with biotech. Um, and so I did, I came down to the Capitol, sat at a big table with all of the representatives of these big, big groups, all of the national groups you can think of, all of the state groups you can think of, and went through the whole briefing and um, at the end, every single one said, this isn't politically, um, uh, we, can't, we can't work with this. It's not politically viable. Until you can prove harm, we can't do a thing with this. So while everything is being transformed in the quote unquote, the environment, you know, thousands and millions of acres of of growing plants, uh, livestock, you know, potential human applications, all of these things were not politically viable. It was one of those completely, I, I mean, I drove home back up to Nevada City going, you know, it's, it's like, it was just one of those moments where I realized we're having a, a severe disconnect. Um, and the way that the these organizations have grown and been funded and their agendas and their way of working politically 
um, within the power structures that existed in cap state capitals and campaigns and this and that were so far off of being um, sensitive to or responsive to the actual transformations going on of evolutionary scale um, that it was, it was just profound. So that was one big epiphany moment. Um, and the other was um, taking on at really at some depth, I probably amassed one of the um, biggest collection of interviews and research on EMF as wireless technologies took off. And it was a real learning experience for me on how discourse is actually constructed um, and how the contentious voices get uh, recognized and enter the debate and the narratives get established, the data gets evoked um, and how it all works in a way that is also so self-reinforcing that the original questions that a seven-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 15-year-old would ask, you know, or 30 or 70-year-old, just a normal human being would say, well, what is EMF? You know, how does it work? What is it? How do EEGs work? How do EKGs work? And that's electric and magnetic fields, right? Yes, electromagnetic fields. And all of our technologies now depend upon them. It's a, you know, radio frequency radiation, all of this. And it's, and I, and I walked into it um, with those naive questions of what is it? How does it work? Um, what is the background EMF? What's the planetary EMF? What's, the, what's coming in cosmologically? How does the atmosphere you know, mediate that? The Northern Lights are a demonstration of that. What, you know, all of this, it was like, take the big picture and start, start delving into what are the biochemical issues and um, I discovered right away that um, there were a number of people doing really good uh, science to the point where what their findings were, like the blood-brain barrier compromise with the early cell phones, with the antennas, um, you know, that that was a thing, that once the blood-brain barrier was compromised, the toxins could go straight into the brain. Um, and that this was more of an issue with children with smaller heads and, and the penetration of the radiation was so much deeper than in adults. Um, and how the industry uh, took over the funding of the science and Congress let them do that. And it, there was just this, there was just all the pieces started coming together in a way where it was profoundly obvious that the questions that a normal person would want to know and learn and find out so that they could discern what is a good idea or a bad idea um, were just not even possible. Scientists had their funding cut off. Uh, it, it, it's, uh, people lost their jobs inside of Motorola. Um, it, it's just, it, it's sort of a classic, a classic sort of investigative reporting um, of finding out how dysfunctional the whole thing really is. But um, so that was, that was the moment where I realized this isn't just, um, 
the end result of, of investigative reporting um, is to affect policy or change law. Um, and then with the hopes and, and trust that regulatory agencies or whatever will, will do what needs to be done. Um, but then, you know, regulatory capture with the industry. So it's, I just all of a sudden just saw that this is such a paradigmatic problem that, um, that on a categorical level, um, we have this public mind that has been um, established and is coextensive with um, the idea of the public square being economics, politics, and social interests, and that the contention of these interests would produce the information, the knowledge, the analysis, the policy that would be uh, appropriate. And um, the disconnect of that whole system with and from the physical, biological, cultural realities uh, was so profound that I really, that's in 2008 is when I just went, there's something big here. I need to chase this. I need to work this through that um, maybe we've got this all wrong um, and we need to have the event horizon. So it's a bit of a neologism that, I, that works for me. Um, if we think about the news as being identifying where are the most important events, developments and issues occurring, um, and we're only seeing it through a worldview that looks at them in terms of economic, political and social interests, we're not gonna see them, or we're, we're gonna see a version of them. It's a kind, it's a, it's a, it's a very limited view um, that's self-reinforcing. So if we flip the table to say that the events, developments and issues are actually occurring in physical, biological, cultural realities, and that the public need to know those realities, um, is so profound and so urgent that upon knowing them, we can then reinform and reanimate um, and redirect economic, political, and social uh, action. Back when I lived in the Bay Area, I was there for about 40 years, and I remember news stories about EMF uh, concerns from people who lived in new residential areas that had expanded out where there are the huge power lines coming in from Pacific Gas and Electric. And uh, they do you know, cause, they radiate a lot of EMF. And yeah. people were saying, it's affecting me. My kids are freaking out. I'm having physical problems. And immediately Pacific Gas and Electric got into uh uh, counter story mode and we're advertising and appearing on all the news stations saying no 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 that doesn't exist that's just people's imagination and they're they're disturbed and they kind of pushed it away and out of the news and that's generally how a lot of news stories get killed is if the big dog in their advertising circle comes and says no that's not good i don't like it the sales uh, department overrules the news department and the story goes away. Yeah, it's it's completely predictable. It's control the narrative. 
win the war, control the narrative. Um, and it, it's, uh, you know, I, I when I started really analyzing uh, journalism and communications majors and you know what what are what are kids coming out of college or grad school equipped with what, what assumptions are working are coming into uh the whole process of you know producing public discourse um producing news and discourse um you know there was a there was a turning point i would say somewhere between around 2008 um where uh, communications majors were making, were getting scooped up out of school and getting paid, you know, entry level jobs twice what a journalist uh, would be would be getting. Um, so there was such a huge economic incentive to go work for these companies and produce and trade journals um, that would just produce this interior logic and then produce the narratives and the data. And it, it's a machine. Um, and they understood right away that if you control the narrative, that's that's it. And yeah, well, the concern I have is that most of what people think of as news now is derived from political messaging. It's all about politics and it's all about, you know, the struggle, the, the political struggle between this party and that party. And are we becoming a fascist state? And I mean, these... So those things may be uh, matters of concern that we should be addressing, but the extent to which we address them, it sort of crowds out all the other things that are happening in the world and all the other urgent issues that we should be considering that we don't even think about. Right, right. It's so topsy-turvy that it's it's nuts. It's nuts. <laughs> I was just thinking the same thing. It's nuts. It is, it is, and, but that's why I'm so, um, you know, deeply animated by and thrilled by the prospect of, you know, looking at this in terms of an idea um, that, you know, uh, I really do think that we're at humanity as a whole is at an evolutionary crux point. Um, and that's, so we can we can look at the insanity of this paradigm that we're in and object to it, you know, like Greta Thunberg is just right on in terms of objecting to it. Um, but uh, expecting it to change when those structures and systems have been built and refined and consolidated uh, in their power um, to just completely turn around by themselves is um is not going to happen so it's it's i think we're really at the ideational level of looking at um are we are we and i do believe that we are at this evolutionary point where we have to be asking ourselves how shall we mediate the world to ourselves um, yeah i mean we're we're going to be in trouble if we don't figure that out but uh, it feels like kind of a wicked problem. Uh, I don't, I mean, I guess my question for you is having defined the problem for yourself, have you been able to define any solutions? Well, I think that the, um, the timing is just so juicy <laughs> that I can't help but get excited because we really are at the point where we can see the failures of social media 
um, and, and the promises of a new internet or a new architecture um, that would provide uh, each person who goes onto the internet with their own identity, their own data, um, their own will and participation. And if the architectures were built out in such a way that from age seven on throughout a person's life, they could build their own sense of themselves as an inquirer into physical, biological, and cultural realities. Um, and that, that if that was legitimized as the new social contract around the world, um, as the new informed public mind, or the way that one becomes informed through formal schooling, informal schooling, affinity groups, research groups, uh, creative projects. Um, I think that we could see a real intellectual evolutionary evolution um, with the implications for democracy itself being sort of a leap, a leveling up. Um, so that's that's what I'm seeing. And I'm, I'm looking at, you know, Web3 is, in, it's got a long way to go. But now's the time to really be talking about uh, what could we create? What's the architecture? What's the architecture that is responsive to and tuned in to physical, biological, cultural realities? Um, and give ourselves the permission to ask those basic questions that um, are not going to be funded um, by in today's world um, by the big companies and military and financial interests in intellectual property and all of those things. Um, yeah, I agree with you about uh, social media. Uh, it used to be uh, a lot of players in there. And when you have many people and many companies involved, you know, it's, there's a lot more being done that's meaningful, but it's now just the big three, you know, Apple, Google, Meta, whatever that is. <laughs> and I have hopes for, you know, the future of, of Web3, but anytime you know, in this country, especially that technology is involved, the immediate need of the big technology companies is to buy them out. We want to make you part of our empire. You can't be a little, you know, funky, uh, independent. You know, if you're gaining eyeballs and clicks, then we want you. And that's what's happened with social media and with m right. much of technology. Right, right. I think you have to look for people sort of like Craig Newmark is a really good example of, uh, what could be part of the antidote? Because when Craig started what became Craig's List, he resisted the the enticement to monetize that thing and to make make himself a billionaire um, in favor of of keeping to the the original plan. You know, it's like he could have made billions of dollars. Uh, or he could have done what he did, which is to sort of keep the keep it in a public service mode. And, you know, I mean, there there have been issues with Craigslist, of course, but uh, we haven't had that kind of evolution, as you saw with 
Facebook and some of the other platforms. And then there's uh, there's the current thing with Twitter sort of imploding and many people moving to Mastodon, which was built as a decentralized system as part of the indie web or independent web uh, technology movement. Um, and Mastodon, one question about Mastodon is how well the the people who build and use Mastodon can resist those kinds of enticements. Uh, will Mastodon be the next platform uh, similar to Twitter, or will it uh, evolve sort of the way that Twitter did? Twitter eventually became, I mean, it was a company, it was a private company, and they were out there trying to make money. They became a public company. They had shareholders to to serve, you know. Um, the, it's like there's this vortex of greed that sucks everything into it. And the question yeah. is how well you can resist it. Right, right. I, I think that the tension is, um, I mean, what I would like to see is... Um, a clear enough definition of the public mind as publicly held that, you know, it really is we, the people and, uh, and if, if there, if a critical threshold of people understand that they themselves, we ourselves can identify what we need to know, um, then uh, you can, create uh, a usability for an architecture for learning what we need to know. Um, at the same time, there's going to be a, there will be a lot of people who don't care about those questions, but just like the success of social media, they just started using it and enjoying it and getting what they got out of it. The same thing will happen, I think, with an architecture that is built for physical, biological, cultural inquiry, um, people don't need to ascribe to physical, biological, cultural inquiry to be engaged in um, and to learn from it and to benefit from it and to, to see that there's a coherence and a, a will that can come out of an informed, uh, an informed uh, not in a static way, but in an ongoing lifelong pursuit of the event horizon of physical, biological, cultural is living. It's a living event horizon. It's always going to be changing. Knowledge will always be provisional. Um, the questions are what matter. The spiritedness with which we engage those questions, the intelligence that says, wait a minute, this doesn't quite reconcile with this. You get great debate. Um, it's the it's this good faith effort um, that I think that I believe that human beings not only are good at, but will be um, uh, hugely inspired by that we can do this. We can come back to sort of a relational intelligence that says, I need to know this because upon learning it, I will be able to understand how to be. Um, and, it, and it moves towards wisdom, 
not towards control, domination, and power. And the two have, you know, been in constant tension throughout the entire arc of human, human experience. And I think we've just lost it. I think we've just come to the end of a paradigm of that's been so dominated by an economic, political, social worldview. And it's so human centric and it's so self-interested and it's so self-reinforcing that I believe that, that we really do need this new idea and a public will or a public usability of a whole new way of conducting ourselves online um, that is not you know, constricted or, or um, defined by nationalities or races or genders or whatever. Well, one problem is that if you've got all the kids out on the playground and they're cooperating and playing real well together, and then suddenly a bully shows up and starts kicking people around, then that really changes the dynamic. And that's a problem that we have is that um, people with the best intentions and people who are have, you know, some degree of intelligence and discernment and, and might seek to become better informed and so forth, that they are uh, not necessarily in a, in a playground where they can play that game. Sometimes they're having to spend time either avoiding the bully or aligning with him. And that's something that we've seen, you know, I'm obviously I'm kind of alluding to the whole Trump thing and the impact that it's had on the public conversation. And I think that, you know, in some ways, um, the power of the bully, which is really the power of the coward, um, finds itself uh, getting traction because of the lack of awareness, um, the, the um, vacuum of the unempowered, um, uh, the lack of engagement between the two. So the bully gets more power when the um, bullied um, is not being able to assert their own power of knowledge or their own power of insight or their own power of being able to hold, contain, and transform the cowardice of the bully. Um, so I think that um, in some ways we have to recognize our own vacuum um, in ourselves uh, that has been vulnerable to the exploitation of the bully. So. Well, the bullies that we've uh, been inflicted with recently, particularly uh, Rupert Murdoch's operation, Fox News and many others, and a local guy here, Alex Jones, it, it gives me hope that there are people that are finally calling them to question their, what are you up to? Why are you doing this? You know, Rupert Murdoch has been ordered to appear in court and be deposed in his suit by the Dominion Voting Machine Company. That is a game changer there because it's it's one thing when you're the big bully and no one is saying, hey, stop it. You know, there's something wrong with what you're doing. Now people are finally being able to do that. So that gives me hope. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's always shocking how long it takes. 
it's like the the hurt and the astonishment and the outrage has to register. Uh, and it takes so much longer. You know, it's like the arc of justice just is painfully long. <laughs> but it does come around. It does. It's uh, and that's where, you know, I think that there's a core intelligence in a core moral, ethical intelligence uh, within all of us um, that, you know, um, prevails in the end. I guess all of us who are not sociopathic anyway, I'm we cer yeah, there right. are certainly some people who seem to have no ethical framework right. um, yeah, driving their actions. Right. Um, and, you know, we have we take for granted that we are a country of laws and we expect the laws to sort of work the way that they should. And and then we we see situations where. Put judges in place. If you put a judge in place who doesn't really care about the law and who will make decisions just kind of based on either, well, to make decisions they're paid to make or make decisions based on their political and partisan leanings and that sort of thing, yeah. um, then, I mean, that's so disturbing. It, it That's one of the things that's bothered me more than anything else is the realization that some judges have been put in place that really are not judges and they're not, they don't honor the profession. They don't care about the profession, really. They don't uh, care to judge fairly. They, what they really care more about is power. Yeah. And, and yeah. that seems to be, I mean, that's sort of the problem with this country is that you, you can take power in order to serve or you can take power in order to, uh, in order to dominate. And I think the dominate, the domination use of power is, is, has become so much more common yeah. since, uh, well, since 2016, something right. happened then. Right. Right. Yeah. The will to dominate, then the counter will to dominate. The, it just keeps self escalating. And um, which which I think that we'd be wise to recognize is what happens at the end of a paradigm. Um, it's like the the dysfunction is so replete that the only way to really think through it is to get out of it um, and think about what is it, go back to square one and say, what is it that we need to know? What is it that we need to learn? Um, and um, and really re-examine our assumptions uh, and, and to really take stock of the world that, and the moment in history. I mean, one of the great things to me is, is the definition of the Anthropocene as a really pivotal moment in which we understand that we're living at this hinge of an apocal uh, time frame where for the first time what humans are doing to the earth has a geologic record we are affecting the earth in its physical living uh, body um, on a level that humans have never have never done before and of course this is 
hugely a function of population, affluence, and technology, um, which is uh, um, which is a, a moment I think of being able to step back and say, what are what are we doing as creators? Um, which is a which is a step away from what people commonly look at the Anthropocene as is um, how destructive we are and how awful it is that we're destroying the earth and how do we fix our destructive uh, actions um, and mitigate them or reform them. Um, whereas I'm saying, I think that we need to even go deeper into the question of how do we become informed creators? How do we understand ourselves in the position that we're actually in as creators of physical, biological, cultural uh, dimensions of, of the realities that we live in? Because when we take on those questions and we inform ourselves through those inquiries, the yield is completely different than what is predominantly a harm-based logic through economic, political, social is that you identify the harm and then you work on problem solving the harm. While, the oh, go ahead. While being staying stuck in the harm narrative versus the benefit narrative and believing that the interests driving those narratives and data will actually enlighten us to wise action. And I'm saying, no, <laughs> it won't. We need to actually be informed by physical, biological, cultural realities, which are greater than human, that are a living system that is bigger than us, that when we come into relationship and are informed by it, we are coming into understanding ourselves as creators in a creative relationship with other that has terms and conditions of its own that is not determined by us, that is not. Well, humans uh, are not always good at seeing what's real. Oh, God, yeah, yeah. I mean, but when they do, it's hugely wonderful. It, people, uh, you know, from all walks of life, station, whatever, um, exposed in the right ways and given the right, uh, you know, positively sanctioned um, position are brilliant. They're brilliant. You know, I guess one question is whether a real paradigm shift could be driven entirely by human choice or whether other forces have to be at play. I mean, it tends to be that when things really change, there's forces involved that are, you know, that that are not just human decisions, you know, not just humans making up their minds to do something, but they're being pushed by forces of nature or forces of what history, politics, whatever. So how do you how do you actually how do you lay the groundwork for a real paradigm shift? Um, well, I think that there's the intellectual work of it, um, which I've been toiling away on um, in, in making the case for it. 
um, in the same way that, um, you know, any paradigm shift or theoretical shift occurs. It's, it's, it's like you have to be able to bring attention to a paradigm that everyone is in and has been and takes for granted and is the default set of assumptions which are so unconscious that we're not even aware of them. It's just the way it is. Um, so you're bringing that into consciousness as, you know, this is a paradigm that you're living in at the same time as you're bringing in a new paradigm that says, but look, if we look at it this way, then we get this out of it, which is what we really need, um, which advances our capacity. It advances our intelligence. It opens the world to us and it opens ourselves to ourselves in ways that um, are lead toward wisdom, um, which is got to be the core to democracy, right? Is that you have this uh, enlightened public will that's informed uh, in a way that is coherent enough that it is highly functional. Um, and then the business of governance becomes secondary, not primary. People being people uh, generally don't react to uh, uh, literary uh, um, pleas for uh, you know better behavior and, and relating relating to the environment. I remember from you know the early uh, uh, environmental causes that were caused by pollution of uh, you know, automobile pollution, you know, the smog in LA, the smog in the San Francisco, all over. And it was only when that became really horrendous that people said, yeah, maybe we should do something about it. That seems to be uh, the uh, default setting for people is they, they're concerned, but only when it impacts them and is starting to hurt. Yeah, yeah. Um. There's always, there, I think that that's, that's just human nature um, on some level. I mean, when I got into the EMF stuff and I would finally say, well, what's, what's the answer here? And people would, you know, with great resignation say, it's going to be body count. When, when the, enough bodies fall over, then the public will start to, to care. But again, this is such a, such a lowest common denominator way of, of being in the world um, and of imagining society that I think we have to accept that, yeah, it happens that way, but it doesn't have to. Um, and that we have core ideals that we can resurrect and be creative with and be visionary with and be determined enough to equip ourselves with the mechanics, um, you know, whether it's paper, whether it's online, whether it's an architecture for inquiry, these are things that can be done, they can be created, um, and they have huge effects. We always knew that with climate change, people would start taking it seriously and maybe take action when they actually started seeing the effects. But the problem was that by the time you're seeing the effects, it's too late to do that much about it. Right. And right. that, uh, right. you know, that's, I guess, the problem of the human condition and maybe a problem with democracy. I, I've always been skeptical about 
democracy actually working as democracy is supposed to work, even though I'm with Winston Churchill, you know, I mean, it's it's a terrible form of government except for all the other forms of government. And right. and you kind of have to figure out ways to honor the democratic intent, you know, the intent to be democratic. Um, but people are never quite well enough educated or well enough aligned. Um, there's always um, a difficulty having a complete, like universal democracy, if only because you don't get complete buy-in. Some people just kind of opt out of it. Right, right. And that, you know, the heck of it is now that we are uh, cognizant of, you know, planetary crises. Um, we understand that the definition of crisis is high stakes, no time. So the problem of waiting for things to get so bad that people will be motivated to act is uh, highly problematic because we don't have time. Uh, and the narratives that that we're caught in um, are not are not commensurable, you know, in Thomas Kuhn's paradigm shift language, you know, we're not, we're not matching uh, what needs to be seen with what is. So it's like, um, I, I really feel like we need to have this leap uh, and, and a will for leap um, away from this very constricted worldview, which is highly reified um, into another worldview entirely that people all around the, the planet can engage in online simultaneously tuned into uh, a physical world, a, a living world and a meaning making world uh, that is um, alive and that enlivens them in the process and enlivens the, the affinity groups and enlivens. And then you can begin to cultivate, you know, a true responsiveness to what we're creating, what exists. Um, and, and I just really feel like uh, we have to acknowledge all of the ways that we shoot ourselves in the feet constantly. Um, so if somebody said uh, said that I I agree with your I agree with what you're saying I I think we need to start doing something. Here's a million dollars. What would you do with that million dollars? What would your first step be? Oh boy. Um, I think to uh, really think through the actual architecture of the next internet. What is it? How is it? How could we build, how could we equip ourselves with technologically, with a uh, present tense moment uh, that is a living moment uh, that is tuned into physical, biological, cultural life in a way where we can activate questioning basic naive questioning uh, in regard to 
all of the dimensions um, from, you know, uh, I mean, there are a lot of people out there working in ways that are just incredibly interesting uh, already. Uh, uh, Rupert Sheldrake with morphic fields and, um, you know, even just asking the EMF questions, the toxins, the levels of what are we eating? Uh, what, what kind of living body are we creating every time we eat something? And what is in that? Um, these are just such basic fundamental things that, but, but when you allow yourself and people around you to begin asking them, it's hugely liberating and it's hugely um, informing because you don't go back to the narratives being produced by the interests uh, that keep our attention. And on some level, you know, that million dollars would go towards recognizing that we are attentional creatures. And so where we take our attention is huge. And if we equipped ourselves with attention that is actually attending to the world that exists, that is much greater than us. And yet when we open it up and we start discovering it, um, it's enlivening. We become, our own intelligence becomes alive on a level that I think that people unconsciously are deeply hungry for right now. Well, I can think of so much more to ask, but we're, we're unfortunately out of time. So I hope you'll come back sometime oh, okay, in the near future to. and we'll talk some more. Thanks. Okay, well, thanks so much, Casey. You can follow the Plutopia News Network at plutopia.io. On Facebook, go to at Plutopia News. On Twitter, it's at Plutopia. With John Lepkowski, I'm Scoop Sweeney. This is the Plutopia News Network, 20 minutes into the future.